So today is the sixth time that we'll be thinking about a big hero and a small story. And we've thought about lots of people so far, haven't we? People maybe that you've heard of, and maybe one or two that are less familiar. And so today we're looking at Nicodemus. And that's probably someone that you've all heard of. He's a very sort of famous person. But in my eyes, he's a big hero, but he still has a small story for us. It's interesting because Nicodemus, we only read about in John's Gospel. Remember, there's four Gospels altogether, and we just read about him in John's Gospel. John was the last of the 12 disciples to die. And it was about, well, probably 55 years before that his brother James was the first disciple to be martyred. So 55 years is a long time since your brother died and you're still going strong with God and you're remembering all the things that Jesus had said to you intimately and things that you'd heard of. Now, we can think about John being very different from the other Gospels. And the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Perhaps it's something you're familiar with. And they're called Synoptic because you can see the optic, as in opticians, is the sea bit. And the sin is a Greek word for together. So that's where we're seeing the Gospel of Jesus in the same way. So Matthew, Mark and Luke all kind of say similar things in a similar language. And so John's gospel is very different. In fact, some people say around 90% of John is not found in the other gospels. I think we've got a lot to thank John for. We can say thank you, John, St. John, for telling us about the wow at Cana. You know, sometimes we sing that song, Water you turned into wine. That wouldn't have been written if John hadn't written his gospel. Because how would you think that Jesus would turn water into wine? As if. Do you think that would ever happen? Surely he'd turn water into some sort of non-alcoholic cordial or something like that, wouldn't you? Because surely Jesus doesn't teach, uh, turn things into wine. And Surely. And what about Nicodemus? Yeah, we're going to think about him a lot. But then all these other things as well, and other things as well. Without John, we wouldn't have heard about Lazarus. We wouldn't have heard about uh, sort of Jesus praying, you know, the great prayer that he prays in chapter 17 of John. All these different things, the woman of the well, all amazing things. If John hadn't written about Nicodemus, John 3.16 would say something else. Remember that verse? It's like the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shan't perish, but have an everlasting life. So if John hadn't said, oh, Nicodemus and Jesus met and this is what they say, I wonder what John 3.16 might have said. It's probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. And probably it wouldn't have been the most quoted verse. It might have been something totally different, still something marvellous and encouraging and, and divinely, divinely inspired. But it would have been so different, wouldn't it? When Jesus said to him, God so loved the whole world, I wonder what Nicodemus thought. I reckon he thought, how preposterous. If there's such a sort of word he knows, he would have known that. He would have said, how can it be that God loved 
the whole world. Surely God loves Israel. But Jesus loves the whole world. Jesus loves us. That's what he died for, for us, wherever we come from. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves everyone in the world. There's four main facts that we're going to look at this morning. Who was Nicodemus? Why did he visit Jesus? What happens later? And why is he a hero? So, who was Nicodemus? Well, if you look at the beginning of John chapter 3, which you're welcome to do, we're not going to read it as such, but you're welcome just to peruse it as we're looking through things, you'll read about Nicodemus there. And this is like one of the places where we hear about Nicodemus, John chapter 3. And it tells us that uh, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now, some of you, I know, will be very good at your Aramaic. And Pharisee is from an Aramaic word, which means set apart or separated. So the Pharisees definitely were on their own. They thought, we're doing God's work, we're doing God's plan, we're separated from the others. That's what their name means. And we read a lot about the Pharisees, don't we, in the Gospels. We read about how they tended to hound Jesus at almost his every step. How they were very suspicious of what he did and what he said. Saul of Tarsus, he was a Pharisee. And what did he do to the Christians before he sort of went to Damascus? The Pharisees believed, just like us, in the written Torah. And that's like the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But also, they believed in an oral Torah, which was how people uh, had added things. I've written, they'd written interpretations and amplifications of what the written Torah was all about. So they added lots of rules and things. They thought to make it good for the Israelites, but of course, after a while, it wasn't good for the Israelites at all, was it, to follow the rules that they said. So he was a Pharisee. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, they had lots of uh, important jobs to do. And in fact, there was a Sanhedrin in every town in Israel. But there was a great, that's what it was called, a great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And they do, like, ecclesiastical policies, judicial policies, things that everyone would be touched by and judge things and judge people. And they gave rulings on many different things. And you probably remember that Jesus stood before the great Sanhedrin before he went to see Pilate and was condemned to crucifixion. And we read about that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22 and 23, and John 18. Now, Nicodemus, who we say he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was probably in the Sanhedrin as Jesus was being condemned. We don't read about him being there explicitly, but because he was a member of them, he probably was there. He was a rich man, he was intelligent, and the important thing for today, he was inquisitive and searching. Why then? Why did he visit Jesus? The thing was, I think, he knew a lot about God, he knew he didn't know everything, he was intelligent, and he was inquisitive and searching again. He had questions. It's really good to ask questions. Whether it's questions about our faith, questions about the church, questions about the Bible, it helps us to become more mature. If we don't ask the questions and there's something burning within us 
and we're wondering what's going on, then we can't sort of always know the answer. But if we ask someone a question, even if it's a direct one, which is a good thing to do, then that's very nice. He was a very spiritual man, and he didn't know that he needed spiritual regeneration like we all do. But Jesus told him all about it, didn't he? About being born again and about, like we say, John 3.16. He would hear about that. I wonder if Nicodemus was embarrassed going to see Jesus. In John, it says that, in John 3, it says in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. And you read all kinds of things in different commentaries about it. Some people say that's a symbolic state of his relationship with God. It was night time, and that's just how he was with God. Some people say he was embarrassed. He didn't want to go publicly to see Jesus and talk about things because he didn't want to, people to know he didn't have all the answers. And being a Pharisee, perhaps people thought, and a member of the Sanhedrin, maybe they thought... He should have had all the answers. Maybe he had lots of questions because he was just seeing what Jesus was doing. If we read uh, John 2.23, it says, um, Now while he was in Jerusalem, this is Jesus, at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So the Bible, the Gospels, don't have all the things that Jesus did. Because if we read at the other end of John, in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, it said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So we've just got like a verse, a few words saying, Jesus did other signs at the beginning of his ministry. And we would have done other signs throughout his ministry that we don't know about. And so Nicodemus wasn't just sort of going to him and just asking a few blunt questions. He was, Jesus was doing signs. And probably, partly, it was part of his job as a member of the Sanhedrin to go and check and see, what's going on? There's a teacher there. Are they taking our people away from the truth? Or are they doing godly things? So maybe that's another reason he might have gone to see Jesus. Maybe it wasn't just a personal thing, although definitely that was, Maybe it was his employment, his profession, his job that made him go to see Jesus because he had to find out for the rest of the Sanhedrin what Jesus was up to because Jesus was getting on with being Jesus, which is a brilliant thing. But they were concerned. But I've read as well that rabbis and teachers often did their discussions about the Bible at night time. So maybe it was just a natural thing just to go at night to see Jesus, because that's the time you went to see people to talk about the Bible and to talk about faith. Remember when Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus uh, to go round his house? It was for dinner. So that's probably the night time, wasn't it? So Simon invited him to come round for a good old discussion, a bit of a chinwag about what God's about, what the Bible says, all the verses from the Old Testament Jesus would have known and Simon would have been saying these things to Jesus and Jesus would have just been there at night time because that was a natural thing to do. So there's all kinds of reasons why he might have gone at night, but maybe it's just no significance whatsoever. But it's just a nice thought to sort of think, why did John say at night? Was it for a special reason, or was it just to fill out the story a little bit? Jesus starts the conversation with two very important words. 
he says, Amen, Amen. And when Jesus said, Amen, Amen, at the very beginning, that is something really important. He's really saying, listen up, everyone who can hear me, I'm going to say something really important to you. In the King James, I remember when I was younger, because I read the King James a lot when I was younger, before I was a Christian, really, and they'd say, verily, verily. And that's what Jesus said. You can just imagine Jesus saying, verily, verily. At least that's the impression when I was a real youngster, thinking, would Jesus say such a thing? But that's what the King James was. And it really got my attention, thinking, ah, something good is about to happen. Because it's like a a trumpet sound, something going on saying, pay attention, I've got something important to say. And it was important, what Jesus said. It was important to Nicodemus. But how many millions of people through the centuries have been touched through John chapter 3? Over the centuries, people from all nationalities, because Jesus said something important to our big hero with a small story, Nicodemus. Jesus called Nicodemus a teacher of Israel. And that was definitely one of the terms that the Pharisees called themselves They thought of themselves as the teachers of Israel. What happens next? What happens later? Well, Nicodemus, I think, the inquisitive, intelligent man that he is, still has questions. But in John chapter 7, we read some things. But, do you know, sometimes in the Bible, my imagination gets going a little bit. Does it with you as well? That the Bible only starts us off by saying a few things. And I think, what really happened next? For example, when Mark talks about the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler goes away from Jesus, Mark tells us exactly how he felt. Kind of sad. Because the rich young ruler was wealthy, rich young ruler, and he was wealthy, and Jesus said something really challenging to him. So he went away, a bit sad, thinking, I've got to get rid of all my wealth, I've got to change my life. John doesn't say anything about how Nicodemus felt after his conversation or interview with Jesus. But I wonder how he felt. Did he have more questions? Did he sort of think, wow, being born again, being born from above, what does that mean? For God so loved the whole world, what does that mean? Surely that can't be true. Or maybe it pushed Nicodemus more into relationship with Jesus and with God. I wonder. Maybe in heaven we might get a chance to talk to Nicodemus, but I think we'll be really busy worshipping, so we won't get a chance to talk to anybody or anything, will we? We'll just be seeing the lamb and just thinking, oh yeah, brilliant, thank you Lord. That's my view of heaven, but maybe we'll just be talking to people as well and just sometimes. But how was Nicodemus when he talked to Jesus? How was anyone when they talk to Jesus. If, you, if Jesus was here physically or 2,000 years ago and were with Jesus, how would you have felt? The Son of God looking at you in the eye, eye to eye, holding you, speaking soft words or challenging words. How would we have felt? In the end, we know that Jesus had an influence on Nicodemus. He made a life-changing decision. I think he would have said, have everything, Lord Jesus. You know, I've got reasons for this, and we'll come to those in a moment. But the Pharisees get a lot of bad press 
in the Gospels, don't they, as we've mentioned already. And that's really true, because they did some bad things in a way, because they were meant to be the leaders of Israel and putting people in the right way, but they didn't. But who was it when Jesus died that came to claim Jesus' body? It was two Pharisees. It wasn't Jesus' disciples. They were all scared. They were scared of the authorities, scared of what might be done to them. But these two brave men, these Pharisees who we sort of, sort of look at and say, oh, it's the Pharisees again, they can't be any good. But these two brave men, these Pharisees, came and claimed Jesus' body. That would have been very dangerous for them. They were publicly putting themselves with a criminal because that's what Jesus was thought of at the time. They were publicly saying, I belong to Jesus now. Have everything, Lord Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I'm claiming his body and I'm taking him and burying him. And what repercussions they might have had, immediate repercussions. And if they lost their job on the Sanhedrin, and if they're kicked off because straight away they're not following God's rules, they're following this criminal, someone who's against God, or so was thought at the time. But they are able to go to Pilate and claim Jesus' body. They boldly asked for it. They weren't secret disciples anymore. They might have been secret disciples for quite a while, but now by claiming Jesus' body, they were saying, I'm nailing my colours to the mast, as they say. I'm being with Jesus. I know that Jesus was a criminal, but I'm saying Jesus wasn't a criminal. Interestingly, as we were saying earlier about the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they only mention Joseph of Arimathea coming to collect Jesus' body. It's only John in chapter 19 that mentions that Nicodemus went as well. I've had a good think about that this week, thinking, well, why didn't the other gospel writers say about Nicodemus? That was their great opportunity to say Joseph wasn't on his own. He had someone to help him. I haven't come to any conclusion. So if you've got a great idea, tell me later. Send me an email. Pop it in the post. Put it on a postcard. And let me know. Because I've got no idea. Why would they not mention someone who's a big hero? Why wouldn't they mention someone who did something incredible for Jesus? Here's a bag of fair trade rice. It weighs a kilogram. The amount of spices that Joseph and Nicodemus used was 33 times as much of this. Now, I'm not going to ask Barbara how she transports her lots of uh, rice around, but I bet she doesn't go like this around church, just putting it all on her arm and just all on the other arm because... It's like possible to do that, but having 33 bags of 33 kilograms of rice or 33 kilograms of anything wouldn't be so easy to hold, would it? It's all right. You could if you're sort of young and fit and everything, and maybe there's a few people that carried it, or maybe there was a donkey as well. But just imagine the weight here and times it by 33. Think of all the spices that they had brought to 
embalm and love and worship Jesus' body. Loads and loads. What a weight. Sometimes we think, perhaps in our type of Christianity, that the popes don't have very much to say. He's amazing, the present pope, and some of the other popes in the past as well. But one of the lesser-known popes for sort of evangelical Christianity is Pope Benedict XVI, the previous one to just. And he said this when he wrote about the uh, 33 kilograms. It's about five stone, if that's easier to think about. Five stone of, of spices. Pope Benedict XVI, he says... The quantity of the balm is extraordinary and exceeds all normal proportions. This is a royal burial. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't often read what the Pope says or any of the Popes have said. I've I've closed my eyes and ears to them, to be honest. But we don't have to. They're men of God. They're searching and learning just as we are. And that's a brilliant thing. He's suggesting it was so much more than normal that it was a royal burial. I can imagine that he wasn't stingy at all. We said already that Nicodemus was probably very wealthy. It's a good job. If you had 33 kilograms of spices and stuff to do with Jesus' body, how much would that have cost? It's not just how much did it weigh, but how much did it cost Nicodemus? to supply all that. An awful lot. That was worship. Often we think his worship is just singing songs, isn't it? But what was it like to take Jesus' dead body from the bottom of the cross? Joseph of Marathia and Nicodemus did it. They took his body and their act of worship was to embalm him, to put the linen round him and the spices and make it ready. Because you might remember, you might know, that the Jews have two steps for their sort of burial. The first step is to, uh, like we say, get the body ready and uh, have it sorted. And then a year later, they, when all the flesh is decomposed from the bones, they'll come along and clean the bones up and put them in the ossuary. Now, of course, Jesus didn't need step two because his flesh didn't decompose. He was alive, wasn't he? He didn't even need step one, really. But that's their act of worship. That was them saying, I love you, Jesus. What a unique worship time that was to sort out Jesus' dead body with all these spices. In 1874, Francis Havergal wrote this hymn. And here's the fourth verse from a hymn. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. And this is what Nicodemus was saying. Take my silver and my gold, all this money I've given in to these spices, because, Lord, I give it to you. Have everything Lord Jesus. So, why is he a hero? He made a life-changing decision to publicly follow Jesus, even when the immediate repercussions have been pretty bad. Like I say, he might have been kicked off the Sanhedrin. They might have said, can't be a Pharisee anymore. You're with the enemy. 
you're not following God, you're doing something of a false teacher. And he came up, kept on asking questions, I think, asking questions about God. Now, many of our family and friends don't know God, and perhaps we pray, Lord, help them, inspire them to ask me questions. And that's a good thing, as we keep on asking questions ourselves about God, so we want our family and friends also to know God. And asking questions is a great thing. We want their eyes to be open. Remember how recently we've been saying from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, uh, we've been saying, and I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very centre, and this is Ephesians 1, 18, 19, actually, and I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very centre and core of your being, may be enlightened, flooded by the light of, by the Holy Spirit, so that you will know and cherish the hope, the divine guarantee, the confident expectation to which he has called you. We want people's eyes to be open. We want our eyes to be open. But we want non-believers' eyes to be opened as well. And we will know that as God causes to cause people's eyes to be open. So he's going to say to us, get ready. If people are asking you questions, here is 2 Timothy 4.2 in the Amplified. It's saying, preach the message Preach the word as an official messenger, no matter what the situation. So God wants our eyes to be open. God is saying, yes, open your eyes, but as other people open their eyes to what I'm doing in their lives and are doing around the world, get ready, because people will start asking you questions. So be ready, whether you're on a Monday or a Tuesday or Wednesday, get ready, because God is going to cause people to ask questions about life and about faith and about Jesus. Now, it might seem strange. There's two more weeks left of this series, and we've got Paul speaking and Jean speaking as well. But this is the last time I'm speaking, so I thought you might want to know really why I thought about doing this six months ago. And this is it, because God is calling us all to be heroes a big hero, small story. If I see a big musician that's international and is well known, sometimes that makes me think, why should I bother? I'm an okay musician, but they're exceptional. I'll just sort of carry on practicing a bit, but it doesn't really inspire me because they're way beyond what I'll ever be. And perhaps if we talk about people like Elijah and King David and Paul and Smith Wigglesworth, and C.T. Studd, and Hudson Taylor, and people like this. Sometimes you might be thinking, they're just so way beyond me. They're great examples, but it's shutting down my faith in God, rather than encouraging me and in making me want to go more. So my thoughts about looking at these people is, they're normal. They're just like us. And yet, they're heroes, because God used them And God said to them, do what I say, go where I say to go, and you'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing to others. And that's what we need to do, to go where God says, to do what he, to say what he says, and to be obedient to him. Now I've got a question for you. You might sort of think it's a very strange question for a Sunday morning, and it's this. Are you physically fit? Don't answer it out loud, just think in your head. Because by looking at you, I can tell... Nothing. At all. Because you might look physically fit on the outside, but on the inside, 
might be a different story. Or you might be physically unfit, if that is the right thing, on the outside, just because of stresses and strains of life. And that's what happens, isn't it? Are you spiritually fit? Recently, Jill and I watched a programme about keeping fit. And the doctor, very learned gentleman, has been on television many times, was trying to make it possible for us to become the most fit in the least amount of time. And he talked about willpower and all kinds of different things. And I know some of you go to the gym, and that's brilliant. You're spiritually, well, you're physically fit, and you're going for it, and that's lovely. But are you spiritually fit? Because there are no shortcuts to being spiritually fit. We might watch a television programme and sort of say, oh, if we do two minutes of exercise, of intense exercise for two, two times a week, or do this or do that, that will make us fit physically. There is no substitute for reading the Bible, praying, meeting with other Christians, and getting to know God that way. God is calling us all to be heroes, but there is no substitute for reading the Bible, praying, meeting with other Christians. That's the way God's ordained it. That's the way God says, be like me by doing these things. We can't get away with praying for one minute every other day. That's not just Paul or me or anyone else who wants to kind of be going for it. It's all of us. If we're Christians, we want to find time and spend time with Christ. We want to know him. And there are no shortcuts to this. So... That's my encouragement and challenge to all of you and to me. God is calling us to be big heroes. And maybe in the years to come, if people write about us or write about the church, we might have two sentences or a small paragraph about what happened. But that doesn't mean that we can't be big heroes. That doesn't mean we can't do a lot for God and say, Lord, I'm going to be obedient to you. And just like Nicodemus, put my colours on the mast and say, I'm with Jesus, I'm following him, I'm going to go where he tells me to. So let's pray, and then Jill's going to help us to respond to all of this. Lord, we thank you for Nicodemus especially today. We thank you, Lord, that he knew you, and he knew you because he had so many questions. Lord, as our friends question us about our faith, help us to be ready, help us to have the answer, help us to learn to listen to you, to speak the truth and to be honest and humble about it. And Lord, as you ask us to do things, to go to different places, help us in our worship, Lord, to say, with all my heart, with all my finance, with all my time, Lord, I give it to you, just like Nicodemus did as he looked after your dead body on earth. So thank you, Lord, for what we've learned. Lord, help us to be big heroes for you, knowing that you are with us and you make a difference in all our life. Amen.